Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Before we jump into the episode and our conversation with Angie, if you were here last week, you probably remember, but we are going to be trialing a new feature if you are interested. So if you're interested, after the conversation, please stay on the call. And then what we're going to be trialing is just a about a 10-minute Q&A with an expert. And we have Angie as our expert today. So if that is something you're interested in, you can ask her anything related to anything speech-related. It doesn't have to be related to the podcast. And what we'll do is you'll stay on. You'll raise your hand in the participants. I believe that's where you can, you know, if you click on the participants, you can raise your hand and then I will unmute you and you can ask Angie your question. And so we will trial that feature, see if it's something that we want to include in a possible new feature with speechtherapypd.com. If that's something that you do participate in, please let us know what your thoughts are during the course survey when you take that portion of the course today. Okay, I'll go over all of that again at the end. So now that we've taken care of that, we'll just jump into it. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am Caitlin Lopez, a pediatric SLP based in Southern California, and I am your podcast host for This Speech Life, and I'm so excited to have the fabulous Angie Neal on today. I adore her. Her passion for literacy and phonological awareness is contagious. And I have loved all of the courses that I've taken on speechtherapypt.com from her. And I know that you all will too, if you're not familiar with her. Before we jump into my introduction, I just want to remind everyone at the conclusion of today's course, If you need the live CEUs, please log into your speechtherapypd.com account and the course portal for today and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz for your live credit today. All right, now I can get to the good stuff. Like I said, I'm Caitlin Lopez. I am the host and I do receive compensation for this podcast episode. I don't have any relevant non-financial relationships to report. And Angie receives an honorarium for appearing on this podcast episode, and there are no relevant non-financial relationships to report for her either. So Angie is a school-based speech-language pathologist from Greenville, South Carolina. She's an adjunct professor for the University of South Carolina, a student-teacher supervisor, a board member for the South Carolina branch of the International Dyslexia Association, and she provides professional development across the U.S. on her favorite topics, language and literacy, as well as social communication. She's received the Nancy McKinley Leadership Award and is a former Teacher of the Year. She's the author of Spelling That Makes Sense, 
The Pirate Who Couldn't Say R, Tate Publishing, Simply Social at School Super Duper Publications, and various products on Teachers Pay Teachers. And I know her very fondly as the word nerd. So I'm just so excited, Andy, to dive in today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me so, so, so very much to talk about my all-time favorite thing, which is language and literacy. So I'm super pumped to talk about it with anybody, but especially you and everyone who's listened. Thank you. So let's just jump in. What are three things that SLPs need to know about our role in literacy? All right. So I love this question, but I struggle to keep it to three. So I'm going to do the best that I can to keep it short and sweet. So of the three or more things that a school-based or any SLP needs to know about our role and why it's so critical to literacy development is first and foremost, that print was created to represent speech, not the other way around. And so the reason that's important to know is oftentimes the way that kids are taught to learn to read is not taught that way. It's taught by looking at the letter, then teaching the sound, when we need to first appreciate the sounds and really to appreciate, especially even before they learn to read, that oral communication and oral language, that's the foundation for written language. It's just, it's all language. It just happens to be in a written modality as opposed to a print modality. So I'd say that's the first thing to know and especially to appreciate about the difference between speech language pathologists and teachers is that just that general mindset of for it really needs to be speech to print. The second and third thing that I would talk about would be the most widely accepted theoretical models for how reading develops. And these are amazing things to talk about. And once you learn them, you become so fluid and talk about them. The first one is called The Simple View of Reading, and it's by Goff and Tunmer. And the gist of the simple view of reading, it's a simple mathematical formula, even though I'm not good at math at all. I'm really bad at math. But it's a simple mathematical formula that says reading comprehension. So that's our goal. Reading comprehension is the product of decoding and language comprehension. And I say product because it's a multiple. Okay, so if you were doing an addition problem, it would be one plus zero is still one. But in a multiplier, one times zero is still zero. In other words, you have to have both decoding and language comprehension. So that's the simple view of reading. And what I really want people to appreciate and understand about the simple view of reading is there's language woven throughout the simple view of reading. So let me expand on that with part two of this answer, which is Scarborough's reading rope. So what Scarborough did in, gosh, 2018, it wasn't even that long ago, is she took the decoding strand and the language comprehension strand and she pulled apart what are the different strands of language that go into decoding and then that go into language comprehension. And so if nothing else, these two things, they're your toolbox for figuring out what a student needs. So in the decoding strand, Scarborough talked about how that includes phonemic and phonological awareness, phonics, and then automatic recognition of words, which is not the same thing as sight words, but that's a whole different discussion for another day. But in the language comprehension piece, that includes vocabulary. Vocabulary are us. That's a big part of what we do. Syntax and morphology. 
also a big part of what we do. Also conceptual knowledge, background knowledge, higher level language skills, and then of course, concepts of print. So as a speech language pathologist, I don't think we all truly appreciate how much of what we do and how we do it is so different, but so complementary to education. So we have a diagnostic prescriptive approach to how we do things. So when we see a student, we have them come in and we ask them to do a certain number of things, number of tasks, so that we can diagnose what the specific needs are, the specific needs, and then prescribe a treatment program to improve those. And that's not necessarily the same line of thinking as an educator. So when we can help support teachers in doing that, most especially if you're in a school and you can be part of the MTSS team, the multi-tiered system of support who are working on providing interventions for students, if you can help tease that apart, that diagnostic prescriptive piece of what are the specific needs, that's a tremendous help to students. And I'll tell you, the number one question to ask, This is the easiest thing to do, easiest thing to do. If you have a student who is coming to you and the concern is that they're having difficulty reading, here's the number one question you need to ask. Are you ready? You ready? Are you sure you're ready? Okay. So the number one question to ask is, if you read the passage aloud, could they answer questions about it? Because if it's read aloud and they can accurately answer the comprehension questions, then you know it's a decoding problem. Again, that simple view of reading, that same formula. However, if you read it aloud to them and they still could not get the answers correct or accurate, then you know you've got to look at both sides of the simple view. And then you've got to tease apart all of the different pieces of Scarborough's reading rope. So those Two, really three big things are probably the most important things that speech language pathologists need to know about language and literacy. But if you'll let me, I'll tell you two more. Yes. Because <laughs> again, I think this is this is some of the most important parts of it and why it's so important for us to be involved. So number four then would be why? <laughs> why in the world is conscious awareness of phonemes, of phonological awareness, of the patterns of the sounds of language. Why is it important? What difference does it make? Because if you can't understand why, it's hard to say, okay, I get it. I'm going to do this. Well, let me tell you. So phonological awareness, that is the skill that allows us to compare the words we know with words we don't know yet. So for example, when you have little people who are learning new tier two, tier three content word, vocabulary words, It's the difference in being able to hear the difference between people, a word they know, and pupa, a word they're just learning. It's also the difference between habit, habitat, session, secession, cumulus, nimbus, denominator, numerator. There are a lot of kids that have difficulty understanding the meaning of these words because they can't hear how they sound different. They sound similar to them. So I hope that makes sense that if you couldn't hear the difference, that you couldn't understand how the meaning would be different. The other thing that phonological awareness does is it is what allows us to repeat new words that we're just learning, like denominator or photosynthesis, and pronounce those really challenging multisyllabic words like reconstruction, isosceles, oviparous. That's my favorite word is oviparous. And the reason oviparous is my favorite is because 
believe it or not, that is a kindergarten word. That is a word that they were learning in one of the kindergarten classrooms that I was working in because it's really about animals that produce young by hatching. But to me, to have kindergartners learn oviparous was just, it just absolutely blew my mind. But again, how hard would it be to learn oviparous if you couldn't pronounce it? It'd be really hard. And even for older students. So I like to give this example of I had a student who was in fourth grade and the fourth grade social studies content was talking about the gold rush from history, the gold rush. But this student was struggling to understand it because he heard goal rush. So he was thinking soccer, not precious metals and history and not the Wild West. And then one more piece is even with the sounds of language is hearing syllable stress. So think about heteronyms, okay? And how the way we put different stress on different words changes the meaning. It's the difference between address and address. So it's a completely different meaning. One means a location and the other is means writing down a loca- location. We changed it from a noun to a verb just based on syllable stress. So again, I hope I, what people truly appreciate is why we need to be involved in this. It's because oral language is the foundation. And if you struggle with hearing the sounds of language, you're going to struggle to understand how they're represented by letters. And again, it just gets harder and harder the older that kids get. All right, if you'll let me go one step further, one step further, here's the fifth reason, okay? The fifth big thing you need to know. Here it is. The two best predictors of early reading success, okay? This is a predictive tool. So we can look at a kid, look at these skills and say, we can predict whether or not they're going to struggle with reading or not. Okay, so the two best predictors of early reading success are phonemic awareness, ding, 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 and alphabet recognition. And so when we train phonological awareness skills, it actually improves the speed with which preschoolers and early kindergartners learn the letter sounds. Okay, so the more we provide that oral language foundation, the faster that they learn the letter sounds. However, and this is a key point, especially if you're in a school, especially if you're working with kindergarten teachers. Okay, it is not about the 26 letters. It's not about the 26 letters at all. It's about the 40 to 44 phonemes, depending on what school of thought you run in. But it's about the 44 sounds and what they look like or what they may look like. And there's a huge amount of phonological awareness to just learning letter names, okay? So even if we're just thinking about the 26 letter names, there's a huge phonological awareness piece. And this is why it's one of the things that is screened for in your universal screeners. It's one of the first questions they ask on your early kindergarten readiness assessments is what are, can kids name letters? Well, the reason this can be so hard is I want you to think about this, okay? When was the last time you ever did like a deep dive into like letters? Like you really thought about like why they're formed that way, why they're called that, why are they labeled that, all that kind of good stuff. I want you to think about this, okay? When you think about consonant letters, how many of the letter names actually start with their sound? Those are the easiest to learn. So for example, B starts with what sound? D starts with what sound? 
Okay, so those are the easiest to learn. Any letter whose name starts with the sound, those are easier to learn. Okay, but there's also a bunch of consonant letters that start with a vowel sound. I want you to think about which ones that might be. Think about the letter F. F technically starts with F. L, same thing. Yes, now I see somebody type it in chat. So yes, L starts with eh, M starts with eh, N, R, S, X, yes. So there's lots of consonant letter names that technically start with a vowel sound. In other words, the sound of the letter or the sound the letter is supposed to represent is that in the final position. And then we have three consonant letters that don't even have their own sound. Three consonant letters that don't even have their own sound. You know what they are? The letter C, the letter Q, and the letter X. They borrow sounds. So again, when they're teaching 26 letters, okay, letters C, Q, and X don't even have their own sound. So we're already tweaking kind of that speech-to-print connection. And then, of course, we have several consonant letters that don't even have connections to their sound. Case in point. W. W has no connection with W. So that is, again, why alphabetic knowledge both has a strong phonological component and why it's such a good screening tool for our preschool and kindergarten students. So next time you get a report from somebody, from a kindergarten teacher or whatever, and it talks about what their letter naming fluency is, this is why you need to pay close attention to it. And with that, those are my five big things that SLPs need to do. <laughs> Not three, five. <laughs> and it's a lot, but I'm grateful that you did jump into four and five because one of my follow-up questions was going to be, why do we need to care? Why do we need to know about this? And you explained it. I mean, we've got a really strong foundation in speech, which is happens to be print, right? And so I really appreciated that you jumped into all five things, you know, was feverishly taking down notes, especially the last two points, which I don't often hear talked about that idea of phonological awareness and alphabet recognition, and then the phonemes and to really deep dive into the letter sounds. So thank you for that. And so one of the things that I do when I do a phonological awareness screen is I also look at their letter name abilities. So I'll give them a letter to look at and ask them its name and its sound. And I think a lot of people probably think that that's sort of crossing over into what a teacher would do. But I hope I've illustrated how and why that can reveal to us that difficulty with the phonological awareness. So it's not necessarily that we need to teach the letter names per se, but to appreciate why they might struggle with it. So I hope that I made that part pretty clear. Yeah, you did. Thank you for that. Because that's something that I haven't been doing. And the way that you explained it, I can see how it could give me a lot more information about trying to figure out the specific needs of a student instead of just looking at the psychologist's, you know, protocol of the TAPS or? Yes. The other piece that I would say to that is when you're looking at the school psychologist report, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll give the CTOP, 
the comprehensive test of phonological processing. Now, what happens more often than not is when they give the CTOP, they only report the overall score, the total score, the composite score. The problem with that is if they're only reporting the composite score, it is not actually revealing what that student's weaknesses are. So they could have been phenomenal with rhyme, but horrible with elision, which is your higher level skills, which you need in order to read. Those are your phoneme addition and substitution and deletion tasks. So that's why whenever I work with a school psychologist, I'm like, please report all of the subtest scores. Or the other thing I like to do is I'll do my own phonological awareness probe. And I look at the skills the student has along the developmental continuum. The second thing that I do is I look at their writing. I love, 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 love to ask the teacher for the student's writing journal. And when I look at the student's writing journal or any other kind of piece of written work, I like to look at the type of spelling errors because that is very revealing of what's actually going on under the hood. You know, what's going on in their brain in terms of how they process sound? Are they representing all the sounds? Are they putting all the sounds in the right place? That's all phonemic and phonological awareness. And you can see it right there in black and white. Absolutely. That's a tip that I learned from you. And it really is super eye-opening. And it also helps me see, oh, okay, these are the errors that the student is making consistently. They're not hearing this. Or for example, I mean, it, it was something similar to the goal rush versus gold rush. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, we've got some issues there with like, in you know, whatever. It was a similar sound, you know, like it wasn't necessarily the LD and I can't remember it off of the top of my head now, but they were consistently not hearing those two letter sounds that show up consistently in our words. It wasn't LD and I'm sure I'll think about it you know, tonight when I'm falling asleep. I'll give you a quick tip. More often than not, the confusion is with voiced versus unvoiced sounds. So writing an F instead of a V or vice versa, or an S instead of a Z or vice versa. And that sort of ties into, again, our knowledge as speech language pathologists of what is voiced, what is unvoiced, what are those sounds? What's a fricative versus an affricate? And why is that important when teaching students what the sounds look like or may look like. And that's another thing that I like to get into is a lot of speech language pathologists, especially in the school are like, oh dear Lord, please tell me we're not gonna be teaching reading. No, we're not teaching reading. We're supporting that language foundation. And part of what we can do is not just teach it because there's everyone else in that building is supposed to have this same skill. Let me say that one more time. Every teacher in that building should have knowledge about phonemic and phonological awareness because that is one of the five essential components of reading. One of the five essential components of reading as outlined by the Every Student Succeeds Act federal law, as outlined by IDEA federal law, and then as outlined by a lot of state laws. So part of our role is then collaborative so that we can teach teachers this information that they may not know about affricates and fricatives and voiced and unvoiced and why that's important. Because when we talk about students learning the sounds and connecting it to what they look like, there's a lot to be said for making sure they understand that 
and this is going to sound weird, but that multi-sensory piece. And when I talk about multi-sensory, it's not writing it in sand. It's the sensation of what your mouth is doing when it produces that sound. So making that kind of a multi-sensory connection. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from SpeechTherapyPD.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. Thank you. Thank you for that. And also bringing up the point of, oh, are we teaching reading now? And also how it's collaborative, but at the same time, which I've also learned from you, we can weave this into our speech groups because most likely our students that are in speech, our students are also struggling with reading. Absolutely. There is a tremendous amount of resource that it connects students who have an early history of speech language disorders and later difficulties learning to read. Students with difficulty with articulation and phonology that end up having difficulty with learning to read. And hopefully that makes sense that if your sound system and sound production is off and even your language, that language understanding of the sound just that language piece, if that's off, then trying to connect that oral language to the written language, reading or spelling or writing, that's going to be off too. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for making, you're making so many great points that I'm like, am I commenting on all of them? You know, it's been a whirlwind of literacy treats that you've just dropped for us along the way. So as we've talked about five things, not just three, which I'm super grateful for, what are your resources that you can give us for either learning more or resources that we can utilize when we're collaborating with teachers? Okay. Well, first of all, if you're on social media, I'll go ahead and tell you two really great groups on Facebook. And the things that I like about one of these groups in particular is they post a lot of the research. So I'll be honest, I'm not as much on social media for, you know, posting what we just did on vacation or, you know, whatever. I'm on there for the research because it's a whole community of people in these different groups that are sharing research that they found or new things that have come out. And I love that. I'm such a nerd for that. So one of the groups is called the SLP's Role in Language and Literacy. That's a good one. My favorite one, my favorite Facebook group is called, it's kind of a long one. So here's what it's called. It's called Science of Reading, What I Should Have Learned in College. Science of Reading, What I Should Have Learned in College. That one posts a lot, a lot of research and data and has a ton of resources. But that said, aside from social media, I would also either follow or look up the Reading League. The Reading League is out of New York and it is all evidence-based literacy instruction, evidence-based. And I'll tell you this, and I know a lot of people are going to be like, no way, but I highly, highly, highly recommend getting their journal. And it's not one of those hard to digest ASHA journals. It's not. It's an awesome read. And even once you have access to it, you can get the print version and the online version, which I love because I love to just If I'm going and having to sit in the car for a bit, I'll take my reading league journal and read it and highlight it and dog ear it and 
sticky note it and all that kind of good stuff. So the reading league and that journal, and I want to say it's maybe 50 bucks or something. It's really not very much, but what you get from it is so well worth it. It's worth every single cent. And it's got all of the people who are big wigs in the field of evidence-based in language and literacy, including speech language pathologists like Hugh Katz and a bunch of others. But again, I highly recommend the Reading League Journal and even just the Reading League Online. They have a Reading League conference that they do in October, which I have not yet been to, but I would love to. Just not enough time. All right. And then if you're looking for a specific book, like you're like, I need a summer read that's not fiction because that's how I am. I don't read fiction. I read all these nerdy books. So if you're looking for a summer read, (laughs) nerdy summer read, I have two. First, I would say it's called The Essentials. It's a long one. So here it is. It's called The Essentials of Assessing, Preventing, and Overcoming Reading Difficulties. And it's by David Kilpatrick. Now, this is a huge book. Okay. It's a big, thick, heavy research-based book. Okay. It's not a narrative book necessarily. But let me tell you, this book never leaves the side of my desk. I reference it all the time and I can never lend it to anybody because I have, like I said, I've highlighted it. I've noted the margins. I've doggered the pages. I've put sticky notes everywhere. I reference this book all the time because it has so much good comprehensive information. in it. Now, if you don't want a big, heavy, thick, dense book, the other book I would recommend is by Daniel Willingham and it's called The Reading Mind. Now, this one is more of a narrative style of writing, and it's really it's really a great read. It's a great read. It's an easy read, and it still will provide you with a lot of great information. And then, okay, I've gone over again. So this is, we're now past two resources, but I got one more I need to give you. So I also want to recommend some podcasts. So like this one, there's some other podcasts that I love to listen to. My personal favorite is by Tiffany Hogan, speech language pathologist Tiffany Hogan. It's called the See, Hear, Speak podcast. I love that one. The other one that I really, really like is by AIM, A-I-M, AIM Science of Reading podcast. And it's the same kind of thing where they have different experts come on. Actually, Reading League also has their own podcast. But these are great ways to get just good snippets of knowledge, kind of like what this is that you can then, you know, dive deeper into later. But when you're riding in the car or sitting out in the sunshine, when it's a nice sunny day in the summer, these are great to just plug in and listen to. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate today. I know I do three, two, one, but I feel like we're getting our bang for our buck today. You know, it's like a five, five, five. Which is great though, but I mean, it's how do you really talk about literacy that is simple, but it's complex. There's a lot of pieces to it. How do you talk about it in an hour? You know, you really can't go in depth on every single thing about reading in just an hour. Because I'll go ahead and tell you one of my other favorite things to talk about that we won't be able to get to is that multilingual learner, the culturally and linguistically diverse populations and what this means to them specifically. And again, this is sort of going off on a tangent, but to really and truly appreciate how if their sound system of their language or their dialect does not match general American English, which is what is used for print language in academics, 
if their sound system and syntactic system doesn't match general American English, that is going to require systematic and very focused and explicit instruction in order for them to master it. And I am thoroughly convinced that that is one of the reasons that those populations struggle the most with becoming proficient readers. It's because we really are not explicit and systematic enough about pointing out those differences. Matter of fact, I was talking with one of our state people about do our teachers of English of a second language, do they talk about and teach the differences in the phonemes and the languages? And they said, no. I said, well, here, let me give you a reference. Because this is something that we've got to make sure that we're teaching. And think about it, like even with Spanish, there are certain sounds that don't exist in Spanish that are in English. So if you're trying to make that letter sound correspondence and you don't know that sound, you have twice the learning curve in order to master that. And if you're a student who has already learned Spanish, let's say they're an older student, let's say they've already learned Spanish and now they're trying to learn written English That's hard, too. People may hear me tell this story before, but I went to graduate school in California, in San Francisco, and I was working at Talbot's, and I had to ship something from one store in California to another store, and I turned to one of my coworkers, and I said, where's La Jolla, California, and she said, you're not from here, are you, and I was like, is it that obvious? But it's La Jolla. So I point that out to say that in Spanish, that double L is not a L sound. So again, if you're a Spanish speaker who's already learned print, now you have to learn how that can look and sound different in English. And we need to do a lot more with that. Again, that's another thing that we can help contribute to our educators is pointing out and letting them know what are the sound differences in the languages? And what are the syntactic differences, the morphological differences? And I think that, you know, you bringing that up is a great reason as to why we need to be on the MTSS team, because we can point out to teachers, this isn't a language or a reading, a true special education function. This is a English as a second language, you know, educational function. It's not a special education function. And so I know being a part of some MTSS teams and not necessarily to this degree of what you're talking about, about the different sound systems, but seeing how, well, they're able to learn through dynamic assessment. So this is not a special education and bringing that to the MTSS team. So, you know, having this knowledge to bring to MTSS teams And having us be involved so heavily in literacy is actually going to diminish our caseloads. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the big pieces that I also like to talk about is, are caseloads really that high? Because are we truly looking at all of our students, especially our culturally and linguistically diverse students, under that lens of their culture and their linguistics? to make sure we're not calling something a disorder that's actually part of their culture and heritage and that should be celebrated and should be acknowledged and not try to change that. That's who they are. That's the language that they've been loved in. And why would we want to change that? Especially like if their grandmother or their other favorite people, if they speak that way, why would we want to say that that's not correct or that's not accurate or that it has to be fixed? That's not sending the message that we need to send. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you for that little tiny tangent, but I think it's a tangent that's still related. And it is a really important piece, which tied back into, you know, a piece that you talked about as to why we need to be involved and how to be involved, which leads me to my next question of what are actionable strategies that we can utilize tomorrow? And I'm glad you asked for strategies, plural, because I'm going to give you a couple you can apply tomorrow, not just one. All right. So the first thing that you can do that's an actionable strategy you can do tomorrow is start looking at what you do under the lens of language. So what you'll find is a lot of what we already do as speech language pathologists, man, a lot of what we already do is phonemic and phonological awareness. So think about it this way. If you're doing articulation therapy and you're working on articulation in the initial position, you have just isolated the initial phoneme. You have just isolated the initial phoneme, which is a phonemic awareness task. Okay. So once we view under that lens of language, we start to realize that there's only a few tweaks that we actually need to make in order to sort of merge these two things together. So I'll tell you some of my favorite activities to do that merge these two things. So one of them is I really like for when I'm having students produce a word, when it's articulation therapy in particular, I want them to not only produce the word, but segment the sounds or segment the syllables and then blend them. So for example, I might lay out three or five sticky notes in a row or put out three to five blocks. Although the problem with blocks is you know what they're going to do with them, don't you? They're going to stack the blocks and they're going to knock them over and then it's going to be loud. But anyway, so sticky notes don't do that or little cotton balls or the little fuzzy balls, but lay them out in a row. And so when you give them a word like, say, it's green, let's say you're working on R blends, you want to have them tap one square for each sound or push one cotton ball for each sound or one penny or one M&M or a goldfish cracker for each sound in the word. So it would go g, er, e, n. And then drag their finger across the sticky notes and then say the word as a whole, green. So you're doing, you're still doing articulation therapy. You just ramped it up that just that little bit. And you can do the same thing for syllables. So for example, again, let's say you're doing R's and you're doing perhaps R in medial position. You could have three to five sticky notes, do the same thing, but break it up by syllables. Pirate, pirate. For gorilla, you go gorilla, gorilla. And what that really, really does is it really helps hone that phonemic awareness for where that phoneme, the R phoneme, is in the word. Then I also like to point to the squares and say, what letters do you see here? And so like for gorilla, they'll probably say G-U, G. Or maybe they'll just say G because they're producing the letter G with the schwa, G. So you can sort of point those things out too. There's other activities you could do like a double L Conan box and you can have them write it and dry erase it, those kind of things. But again, anytime you can make that connection to the letter and the sound or the sound and the letter, that's just going to reinforce it that much more. Two other strategies, two or three other strategies that I really like is number one, ask teachers what are your grade level spelling lists? The more you can pull from those grade level spelling lists to target your articulation or even target vocabulary, the more you're bridging 
the information that they're learning and you're adding to that depth and breadth of knowledge and also pointing out that articulation and phonemes and sounds and vocabulary don't just happen in the classroom and they don't just happen in the speech room. They overlap. So that's another big one. And specifically for language, I know we're, I've really talked more about articulation, but for language, I really like to get the social studies books. The reason I like the social studies books is because social studies is all narrative. It's all a story. It's a story about things that happened in the past. There's also so much great vocabulary that you can pull from there. And you can pull the vocabulary for meaning, or you can pull the vocabulary to work on the phonemic and phonological awareness, like gold rush. So that's another one of my favorites. But here's my all-time favorite. All-time, all-time favorite activity that you can do tomorrow. All-time favorite. Are you ready? Is to tell corny dad jokes. And the reason telling corny dad jokes is so great for phonemic and phonological awareness is because jokes are all a play on words. It's actually a play on the sounds of word or meaning of words. But specifically for phonemic and phonological awareness, I want you to think about these jokes. I'm going I'm to do my favorites. Okay, these are my top three favorite jokes. Okay, for phonemic and phonological awareness. Here we go. The first one is a phoneme addition task. Okay, so here we go. What do you call a smelly fairy? Stinker bell. Ah. <laughs> See what I did there is I added the phoneme to the beginning of Tinkerbell, who's a fairy. Okay, now this one is a phoneme substitution task, meaning where we're changing in and out of sound. Okay, here it goes. Are you ready? When do astronauts get hungry? At launch time. Nice. All right, see, I switched out that medial vowel right there. Okay, all right, and then the last one, which is a phoneme deletion one. Okay, so we're deleting a phoneme. So all of these are phonemic awareness because we're focusing on the phoneme. All right, here it goes. What kind of clothing do ghosts wear? Boo jeans. <laughs> See what I did there? I deleted the L. So there are tons and tons and tons of examples of phonemic awareness jokes, which are also an amazing way to practice articulation and vocabulary. So for articulation, these are all sentence level tasks. So you can practice your articulation at the same time you're telling jokes and working on phonemic awareness. That is awesome. I never thought of using these jokes, but you're right. They are just phonological awareness tasks. Absolutely. And I never thought of that before. So I am excited to break out my dad jokes this week. Yes. So I was raised by a dad who loves to tell corny dad jokes and still does. So I get it honest and I don't know why it occurred to me one day, but I think it was because I was really working on articulation at the sentence level. And I was like, under the lens of language, all my lands, we're just substituting sounds or deleting a sound. So I was like, there we go. That's awesome. I love that. So thank you for, I mean, you gave us so many different strategies and tips and things that we could do and utilizing, you know, those phonemic awareness skills within teaching the articulation, I think is so easy to do. We're already doing articulation therapy. Might as well add a couple post-it notes. Yep. Or, absolutely. You know, whatever little things we have in the room. And I really like the idea of using spelling word lists for vocabulary and articulation. 
I had a teacher that I worked with in my previous district and she loved co-teaching with me social studies because mm-hmm. I asked her for, I said, do you have an extra social studies book? I had a lot of students in her class one year and I said, do you have an extra social studies book? And she said, yeah, why? And I explained it to her of using it for vocabulary and building background knowledge and, and some of the things that I was planning on doing with it. And then she had me come in once a month as like a fun Friday thing and do phonological awareness games with her third grade class. And I used from the social studies book. So it was fun. I love that. And I love hearing that. And I love hearing that collaboration with speech language pathologists and teachers. And I hope that starts to, you know, spin off with other teachers and again, helping to teachers to really know and understand and respect that we're, we really can be partners in helping students thrive academically and meet those academic goals that we're not just in our, in our corner, in our closet, you know, taking kids in and out every 30 minutes that we really are collaborative partners to help all students succeed. And I'll tell you, for me, it's been 20 plus years of trying to convince people of that. But I think now it's starting to pay off. Hopefully. (laughs) I have to say she's really the only teacher that has been that on board with having me in the classroom. And, And I think it's because I asked her when I would start preparing for IEPs for her class, what are your goals for this student? Even though they were speech students and she had never been asked for her input on speech and language kids. And so that was kind of eye-opening for her because, and then I explained it to her, well, if you have goals, how can I tweak my goals to meet your goals? We're supposed to be writing goals on, in California, we use, you know, Common Core and our goals are supposed to align with Common Core. So how might as well bring the teacher in. She's got a better understanding of some of those things and how that relates to the classroom. And so anyway, it was a, we had a really, really good time and I miss her dearly because we would come up with some fun things to do in her class. So, well, I have to tell you after 20 ish ish years of trying to convince people that speech language pathologists have a role in language and literacy, I have reached a pinnacle moment and I'm thrilled to tell you and all everybody else that I have been asked to be part of how we are rewriting our ELA standards for our state. I mean, that is a pinnacle moment when people truly appreciate what we bring to the table. So they have asked me to do it and, you know, it's a lot of time and whatnot. And I'm like, I would do this all day long, every day for free on Sundays, no matter what. I'm just so honored to be able to do it, just to to have that recognition of what we bring to the table. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate level credits. That is so awesome. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you for stepping up to the table and taking that on. Uh, I'm excited to see. So you guys are using state standards for South Carolina. Yes, and we're rewriting them. So especially when we talk about those uh, speaking listening standards and the oral communication standards, when we talk about the foundational skill standards, 
there's a lot that we have to contribute when we talk about not just the phonemic and phonological awareness, but the syntax as it relates to writing, narrative skill, narrative skill development. That's a huge piece. So it's been very exciting and ridiculously exciting. There's not even a bigger word I can think of at the moment for how awesome it's been. That's awesome. That would be a lot of fun. I mean, of course, right? You know, we're such nerds that we're like, yes, let's talk about this. Let's figure it out. You know, and I I have a feeling that the podcast listeners, if you're listening to a speech therapy podcast, you're probably in the same boat as we are. Yes, yes. And it's been interesting because not everybody who's on this committee per se was necessarily bought into having a speech language pathologist on the committee at first. But like within a day or so, they're like, I learned so much from you. And I'm like, I got lots more where this came from. Let's keep going. I'll tell you more stuff. That is so fantastic. I'm happy to hear that. It kind of goes along with the question that I have next is now that, I mean, you kind of answered it with that huge pinnacle moment of being included in rewriting state standards, but how else have you seen your practice transform or even students' lives transform when you've really honed in on literacy and the academic support that we bring to the table? I would say probably the biggest difference it's made is when I work with pre-K and kindergarten. Because when we work with pre-K and kindergarten, and again, we're able to see and recognize these early markers, these early red flags for difficulty with learning to read, again, the phonemic awareness and letter sound knowledge. Once we see that, we can intervene early, even in our own practice. And so we're, to a large extent, we're sort of thwarting any potential difficulties, which they likely were to have based on the research because we're doing this and because we're providing this early. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones I would say also in terms of the success of the students, when I incorporate the spelling words, when I incorporate the social studies words, when I do all of those things, again, it's helping contribute to their overall academic success. And we know what what a big deal that is just from a social emotional standpoint of helping them to feel successful for me personally too, to have a lot of fun doing it. (laughs) Because if it's not fun for me, I know it's not fun for them. So I always try and keep it fun for me. So I know it's fun for them, (laughs) which and I'll tell you one more favorite thing I like to do on that note is I love to teach kids, especially a little bit older kids, maybe first, second grade, pig Latin. Now, if you hadn't thought about it, pig Latin, the long lost art of pig Latin is an advanced phonological awareness skill. So pig Latin, for those of you who may not be familiar, is where you take off the first consonant, you move it to the end of the word. And then you add a. So, for example, this phone would be a own fay. My daughter Kenzie would be Enzy K. So, but once you teach them this and you tell them it's a secret code or you use it as a secret code. So when they come in and they ask you the least favorite question of all time. All right. What is the least favorite question speech language pathologists get? What are we doing today? Amen, sister. When they come in and ask you that, you can say, oh, we're playing Andy Lankay. And then they have to use phonemic and phonological awareness to figure out what that is. That's brilliant. I love that. How fun. Mm-hmm. How fun. And that is so fun because I remember as an elementary kid thinking I was so smart that my friend and I, you know, would speak to each other in pig Latin 
thinking, you know, oh, we're so brilliant. Nobody understands us. And, you know, that's really awesome. I love that. A question that I had, you touched on it just before talking about Pig Latin. So I was working in a district and we were tasked with this in fall of 2019. And then it, this task disappeared. But the idea of trying to come up with a whole district approach to catch these preschoolers and kindergartners who would be at risk for possible special education intervention and to create a program to catch them, you know, at preschool and kinder. And the other caveat that I should say is there were only 10 of us who were working for the district and 40 were contract. So it was only the 10 of us who were tasked with this, not the the contract SLPs. Have you found anything besides just really getting to, you know, those of us who are at our school sites with pre-K and kinder working with the teachers, but has there been any programs or anything that you've seen that could be implemented district-wide for something like that? Yes, to a certain extent, but I also feel like for me personally, just having done that, it really, kind of like what you said, it involves that collaboration with the teacher and actually being in the classroom. So modeling what does a language-rich classroom include and how do we model that so that the teachers then continue that throughout the day? To me, that's probably one of the biggest pieces. So even when I would go in the kindergarten classrooms and I would teach the students, I would go in and I would do two phoneme letter sound correspondences, one phonological awareness target, and I would do a book and a song every week I would go in. And I would always make sure that if I am doing this, the teacher is in the room. This is not a planning period. The teacher is in the room so she can continue to reinforce what the instruction is or what the approach is that I'm teaching so that we're not confusing the students with two different things. The other piece is that's kindergarten with preschool. Preschool is usually, at least in my state, our preschool programs are usually at-risk kids. These are our preschool 4K, what we call SIRDEP kids. And those kids we already know are at risk. So the, the level of intention that we need to take in terms of teaching vocabulary, how we teach it through books, how we reinforce it throughout the day in different activities. And please, please to make sure that we are singing with these children. Let me say that again. Even if you can't sing, you need to sing with the children. And that's not go noodle. That is you singing Jack and Jill. That's you singing row or row your boat, repeating nursery rhymes, All of those things are what lay that foundation. And I think we forget that. We forget how awesome it is to sing Magdalena Hagelina or whatever. Itsy Bitsy Spider, Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes. And those kind of things. And what a contribution that makes to, again, that language foundation for academic readiness. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, And that's kind of what we had concluded was, I don't think we can just have a simple program that you want for us to do because 
when we see it be successful in, in my own practice, I mean, a lot of things that I've learned, I've learned from you over the years through different speech therapy PD courses and things is that the collaboration piece and that deep intention of being in the classroom Mm -hmm. and that's, what's going to benefit students. So thank you for bringing that up of just the intention behind it. And then also nursery rhymes and how so important nursery rhymes are. I currently am working in a a nonprofit private practice and half of my caseload is under the age of four. The other half is not. And so with my really little kids, I've been telling parents sing a nursery rhyme at every, every diaper change. Mm -hmm. I love that rhyme for there. You got a captive audience and, you know, so I sing a nursery rhyme and if they need a list, I have a list that I'll just hand them and a, a, a Spotify playlist, and yeah. uh, you know, trying to make it as easy as possible, right? For people. Yeah. So thank you for even reminding us with the older students too, the pre-K, the kinder, we need to be singing and doing nursery rhymes with them. And again, not go noodle. We need to be involved with them. We need to be demonstrating the motion. We need to be acting it out with them. That's all that does with the crossing the midline and all of those different things that contribute not just to the language foundation, but also to those core skills needed for writing even. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, these nursery rhymes and the things that we do, it's really fun to sit and kind of do a deep dive with them because on the surface level, it seems like something so simple, but there's a reason why we do them. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So thank you for that. Can you recap your five points and your resources for us? Okay. So first of all would be speech to print. That's, we got to have that down pat, speech to print. Second and third, or really second would be the simple view of reading. Third would be Scarborough's reading rope. Fourth would be all of those reasons why conscious awareness of sound is so important where we talked about how it allows us to compare words we know with words we don't know and then fifth would be really that understanding of the letter name fluency how there's a phonological awareness component to the letter name fluency so having an appreciation for that and that that when teachers are teaching the alphabet it's not about the alphabet really it's not about 26 letters it's about what the sounds look like what the sounds may look like and that gets a little bit into phonics because it's a lot of explaining how the sound j can look like a j it can look like a g it can look like a ge or it can look like a dge but teaching that information teaching that knowledge systematically and explicitly again that's part of what's required under law so that's that's the big five and what was the other one you asked just to recap the resources that you gave us. Okay. The resources, the two Facebook groups, SLP's role in language and literacy, then also science of reading, what I should have learned in college. So those are the two Facebooks. Next would be the Reading League and they're online, but highly recommend that journal. I just cannot even tell you how much I recommend that journal. Let me say it one more time. I highly recommend the Reading League journal. And then as far as books, I would say the Essentials book, just look up on Amazon, The Essentials by David Kilpatrick. That will lead you right there. Or for a more narrative style of writing, Daniel Willingham's book, The Reading Mind. The Reading Mind. And then as far as podcasts, 
of course, this podcast. And then also See, Hear, Speak, which is by Tiffany Hogan. And then also AIM, A-I-M, the Science of Reading podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. And then the strategies, we talked about those. If you just want to briefly go over those. Okay. So quick review of that would be number one, start thinking about what you do already, but under the lens of language. And so how even simple tweaks can make a big difference in in terms of making it intentional to really target more of that. So that would be one. We talked about the sticky notes, laying out the sticky notes and separating words by sounds and syllables. If you're working in articulation therapy, we talked about how using grade level lists in your articulation or language therapy, and you can target phonemic and phonological awareness there, as well as vocabulary. We also talked about how both you and I have used the social studies books, especially to target those same skills. And then I think the big one and probably, like I said, my favorite one is using jokes, corny dad jokes for phonemic and phonological awareness. I love it. All right, everyone. We have just a few more moments. If you have a question to ask Angie related to literacy, now is your time to pop it into the chat or the Q&A box. And thank you so much for, this was such a fun conversation. And I could just listen to you all day long, talk about literacy and just deep dive into all of the things and how we do this. Listen, I could talk about it all day. I love this stuff. So again, I thank you for the opportunity just to be able to do it. Well, I love that you took the opportunity to be able to do it. And thank you. I mean, I really loved where the conversation took us and I'm actually excited to go back and listen more to this podcast after. Kevin asked a great question. What do you do about the relationship between language memory and reading comprehension? I have a lot of students who forget so much by the time they've finished reading a few sentences. That is an awesome question. So when we're looking at comprehension and that memory piece, Number one, you have to look at how much is the work of decoding because it's so much work. How much of a cognitive load is that to the comprehension? So if the cognitive load of the decoding piece or even their fluency, if that is slowing them down so much that it impacts their comprehension, then you need to go back to strengthening those decoding skills. Second would be we always forget about how important syntax is, how much of a load syntax has. Let me give an example. I was just looking this up the other day. It's the difference between Harry Potter, which is a lexile level, which is a lot of times based very heavily on the syntactic complexity. Harry Potter is a lexile level of 880, 880. The Declaration of Independence is 1460, a lexile level of 1460. What I mean by that is when you have a lot of very complex, uh, syntactically complex sentences, that is also an additional load. So that also ties into how we can support students by working on syntax, by combining phrases and things like that. That's also a big piece that will help improve that comprehension. Thank you. And thank you so much, Angie, for joining us today. And I know our listeners are really going to benefit from spending this hour with us. Those of you who are live here with us today, just as a reminder, at the conclusion of today's course, 
please log back into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the module entitled quiz. All right, everyone. So at this point, we're going to stop our recording. And if you are joining us for the live Q&A, you can ask Angie your questions directly. Please hang on. Um, those of you who are leaving us, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.